kitchen. Thanks, brother. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Good morning and Merry Christmas. Um, I will express my gratitude too for the partnership we've had with Encounter Church. It's so fun when we do these joint services and um, get to gather together. Um, and it's nice to, to share the pulpit with Michael. I know he's got a, a sermon to preach tomorrow, and so it was nice for me to be able to do it, to do it this morning. That's a, hopefully a blessing to him, and it's an honor to, to get the chance to preach on Christmas Sunday. Uh, before we look at God's Word, I want to you to look at these candles. Um, <laughs> these have not been here at Encounter. They've been up here in the afternoons here for, for Grace Fellowship Church. You may be familiar with Advent candles, and these candles simply represent the coming of Jesus into the world. Jesus is the light of the world, as you have been, I think, looking at John 1, that he has come into the darkness of our world. And so we have lit one of these candles each Sunday of Advent, recognizing the, the, um, the quiet and the humble coming of Christ into the world. And so we'll light one more um, this Sunday, then I'm going to steal them, and we're going to take them to our Christmas party, and we'll light the center candle that represents the coming of Jesus. Uh, but feel free to light your own candles somewhere else. Um, as, a, uh, as a gift to Grace Fellowship Church over the past, this is the sixth year, I think, I've tried to write some Advent poems and read those each Sunday before we light the candle. I tried my hand at some sonnets this year. I don't know if they worked or not, but uh, we based them on... Isaiah, some of Isaiah's prophecies. And so let me read to you two verses from a prophecy of Isaiah that we're going to look at a little bit later and then read you a, um, an Advent poem before we light this fourth candle. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 say, But there will be no gloom for her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In a land of deep darkness, the dawn is approaching. Those who walked in shadow now see a great light. Instead of gloom and despair, a new story is unfolding in which the sun rises high and there is no more night. As in days of great harvest, God's people rejoice, dividing the blessings that their Savior now brings. And those who once had no freedom or voice have broken their bonds and triumphantly sing. How has God brought us this light of freedom and joy? And on whose broad shoulders will this new kingdom rest? In Bethlehem, behold, Mary and Joseph's baby boy. He will cause all God's children to be forever blessed. Worship the wonderful counselor and mighty God who chose to descend. Bow before the eternal father, the prince of a peace that will not end. Let's pray together once more. Father, we do worship you. 
we take this season each year and try to wrap our minds around what it means for God to become flesh. And we do it every year because it's, it's never possible for us to understand how Christ could come to be the Savior, to be God in the flesh. And so we worship you, Lord. We worship you as our wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father and Prince of Peace. And we pray now as we consider those words and others that you would open our minds and our hearts to see who you are, to worship you, to choose by your grace to walk in your ways and to walk um, in, in the fear of you, to walk in faith, to walk in hope. Lord, only you can accomplish that in our hearts, and so we ask by the power of your word through your spirit that you would do that. I confess my weakness and the weakness of the words written on these pages I've typed out, but Lord, our hope is in your word. Our hope is in your spirit. And so we come expecting to hear from you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through chapter 9, verse 7. At the beginning of November, our church began a series through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And fittingly so, the first part of Isaiah contains some of the most well-known prophecies of the incarnation, of the, the coming of Jesus in all of Scripture. And we find ourselves today in, um, in, in, we find ourselves in a passage that contains one of the, the greatest prophecies of the coming of Jesus. Uh, my hope today is to help us see this passage that we often just sort of see on a Christmas card, a, f a few of those words, to see it in its, in its context. Uh, because before we can understand what God's word means for us now, we have to travel to the original audience and seek to see what it meant for them then. And so let me try to get you into the context of this passage. And I've tried my hand at some PowerPoint, which if, if you are a part of Grace Fellowship, you know this is not my strong suit. But I'm doing my best. So at the time of Isaiah's prophetic ministry, the nation of Israel is divided. Uh, we have, uh, we have the, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And neither kingdom was really walking in the ways that God had called them to. And so God sent prophets to call his people to repentance and to hold, ho hold forth the, the hope of salvation while also announcing that judgment was going to come if they did not repent. It was to Judah that Isaiah is prophesying. So he's prophesying to this southern kingdom, and he spoke the word of the Lord to the southern kingdom as a whole and to Jerusalem in particular, and especially to the kings of Judah. Uh, here in chapters 8 and 9, we find ourselves in the middle of some oracles that Isaiah was speaking to King Ahaz. This is what Wikipedia says he looks like. Um, he was the leader of Judah at the time. Isaiah prophesied underneath a number of kings, and this is the third king that Isaiah was prophesying underneath. Um, and so th this, is, this is Ahaz. Uh, the Assyrian Empire is also in this day, that, that's sort of the, the main power. And Ahaz was being pressured to join an alliance led by 
Pekah, this is the king of, um, of the northern kingdom of Israel at the time, and he had joined ranks with a guy named Rezin, who was the king of Syria at the time. Not Assyria, but Syria. And so these two guys were pressuring Isaiah to join an alliance with them to ward off the Assyrians. So Ahaz has a choice. He can join up with, with Pekah and Rezin, with the northern kingdom of Israel, and with the Syrians, and hopefully push back against Assyria. His other choice is to join up with Assyria itself, to hope that maybe if he joins with Tiglath Pilisar, that, that things are going to go okay with them, and that, that would be the better option, that they're a strong power. And last week, Grace Fellowship, we looked at chapters 7 and 8 and saw that Isaiah came to, um, to Ahaz with a third option. The third option is, tr- is trust the Lord, uh, to forsake all these foreign alliances and to instead trust that God was going to protect him. Ahaz did not choose to trust the Lord. Ahaz chose to put his faith in this guy, the king of Assyria. He announced that he would be the servant and the son of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He ransacked the temple's treasures and tried to buy his protection, and it all backfired in chapters 7 and 8. And God, in fact, describes how, uh, how Assyria, who Ahaz had put his trust in, and Judah, who had put their trust in, in Assyria, that, in fact, Assyria becomes the, the means by which God uses to, to humble them and to destroy them. What they were trusting in turned out to be what destroyed them. Darkness and gloom then sort of marked this period of Judah's history. It was a darkness that they brought on themselves, though. And in the midst of the shadows, the question that we've continued to ask is, will they ever change? Can Judah be restored to being God's people? Can Jerusalem become the holy city that the nations were supposed to come and and worship God at? Is there hope for them to trust the Lord? And the answer that we actually find in our passage today is that there is hope and that the hope is actually alive and well. Because amid all of, of Judah's rebellion, there remains this remnant of faithful people. Isaiah has hinted that this remnant remains in Israel, and here he makes it clear that there are people who have remained faithful to the Lord in the midst of a land that is full of faithlessness. And they're assured here that God is going to be with them and that one day he's going to come and he's going to rescue all his true children, that he will scatter their night and he will fill them instead with gladness instead of gloom. Well, as we step into this passage, we have to remember that we're obviously not 8th century Judah, nor do we exist in a monarchy that's been established by, by God. But But we do live, as everyone who has sought to follow the Lord, we live in an age of divided loyalties. There are clear enemies of the gospel, and there are those who claim to be the people of God, but who walk instead in fear of everything around them. They trust in false idols, and they hope in darkness. And so there's a a choice here that's set before us, just as there was a choice set before Judah and before Ahaz, and it's who are we going to trust in? Will our hope be in God and in his way of salvation or in something or someone else? Will will we be a part of those who are God's people in name only, or will we, we be a part of the true remnant of faithful followers of God, no matter what everyone around us 
chooses to do. The passage before us describes what it's going to look like to walk as the true people of God, as that faithful remnant in the midst of faithlessness and fear. You feel that sometimes, that you have to be, remain faithful, and it seems as if everyone else around you is just denying the things that you hold true. What does it look like to be faithful in the midst of faithful, faithlessness? This passage is a, is a charge to walk in God's ways, and it lays out for us a path of faithfulness. It shows us how to walk in the ways of the Lord, how to walk in faith in Christ. It says to us, as God's faithful remnant, choose what is right to fear, to trust, and to hope in. That's kind of our big idea for this, this, this morning. As God's faithful remnant, choose what is right to fear, to trust, and to hope in. There are many voices that are calling out to us, and there are many paths to choose from. But as God's people, we long to choose the ways of faithfulness, to hear the voice of the Spirit saying to us, this is the way, walk in it, and to listen to him, because his way is a way of life and joy and peace. And Isaiah, as Isaiah calls us to walk in the ways of God's faithful remnant, he's going to show us not only the blessings of this path, but also the darkness of the way of unfaithfulness. And so with all that in mind, let's hear God's word together from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through chapter 9, verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him, shall, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the meetings and the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will become enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt, into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As God's faithful remnant choose what is right to fear, to trust, and to hope in. Here then are our three choices I want to give you. Three choices before us. Choices of what to fear what to trust, and what to hope in. And the first choice is fear God or fear everything but God. Fear God or fear everything but God. We've seen that Ahaz and the, the people of Judah feared Assyria. They feared Israel. They feared Syria. They were filled with dread at the, the prospect of what these nations might do to them. And it was the fear of them that filled their eyes and led to their disobedience. But there was someone that they should have feared and revered and honored more than anyone else. And it was the Lord. In, in verse 11, God put his strong arm on Isaiah, a reminder of God's power, but also an indication of the seriousness of this call on Isaiah's life. And he told Isaiah that he and those who remained faithful with him should not get worked up by the conspiracies and the panic of those around them. The nation was jumping at every bump in the night, but they had no regard for the Lord. And it was God who his people should have been in fear of. His displeasure is what should have caused dread in their hearts, not the kings of Israel or Assyria. And his name was to be honored, not the king of Assyria. Perspective can change how we see things. If we traveled to Mount Everest and we stood at the base of it and we, we looked up, it would look massive and and rightfully so because it is massive but you could also stand in front of mount everest and sort of take your thumb and and hold it in front of your eye and suddenly your thumb looks a lot bigger than the mountain these two inches become bigger than the twenty-nine thousand foot mountain that is mount everest because often what's right in front of our face can feel like the biggest thing in our lives especially if it's something that we're afraid of. Because fear reveals what's in our hearts. I heard some guys singing this group called Beautiful Eulogy, and they said, I suppose what exposes the worship in most of us is a close look at most of our thoughts, fears, and emotions. What exposes your worship is your fear, your fears, your thoughts, your emotions. These are the things that, that fill our vision. Financial problems, relationship issues, struggles at school, the desire to be liked, health crises and concerns, your parents, your boss, your spouse, your kids, your future, your past, your present, 
these can all cloud our vision and they can cause us to think that they are the thing that we should be afraid of. But the Lord comes to us in the midst of all those fears and he places his heavy hand upon us and he tells us to look beyond what's in front of our eyes and to look to him. Because the Lord is the one that we're supposed to fear. As Jesus says in the Gospels, we don't need to fear the people that can only kill the body. We need to be fearful and revere the one who can not only kill the body, but can also cast body and soul into hell. He's the one we are to fear and to revere. The context of Isaiah 6, which is such a familiar passage, Isaiah's vision of the, the holy God high and lifted up, that comes to our mind and shapes so much of the book of Isaiah. God is to fill our vision just as, as the train of his robe filled the temple. He is to be honored as holy, holy, holy. And so we read the scriptures and we, we read solid books and we pray and we come to church so that we can remind ourselves of the greatness of God. We can remind ourselves that he is to be honored above all. We remind ourselves that, that the, the things that surround us are not as big because when we fill our vision with God, the fears of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We need to see who God is. I encourage you, read the scriptures. Read books about the character of God. When you get your Amazon gift card in a few days, uh, don't just buy the latest electronic that you want. Go on there and get Packers Knowing God or Tozer's knowledge of the holy or something that will tell you about the greatness of who God is and let that shape your vision of life. Because verse 14 tells us that if we fear the Lord, he will become a sanctuary for us. What a beautiful thing. He will become a sanctuary. Not just a place of refuge, but a place of salvation. Just as Isaiah had entered the, the temple and was cleansed and redeemed and commissioned in the presence of the greatness of God, when we honor God as who he should be honored, in the way that he should be honored, when we repent and we turn from our sin and we trust in him, he becomes a refuge for us, a sanctuary that our souls can rest in. But notice that if we don't fear him, he will not be a sanctuary. He will be a, a, a snare and a stumbling block. Remember, Ahaz trusted in the, in the king of Assyria, and that king became the means of God's punishment on Ahaz and on Judah, because what we fear controls us. And here we see that when we fear everything but the Lord, then we trip over and we are destroyed by the Lord. Commentator Barry Webb says, the Lord cannot be ignored. Whether he is experienced as savior or as judge depends on how we respond to him. From the beginning of Jesus' life, the, the division that God brings into, our, into people's lives is clear. Simeon, who's brought into the Christmas story so often, Simeon the priest says to Mary and Joseph about their little baby who's being dedicated at the temple, he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. From the very beginning, Jesus creates division. The New Testament, in fact, quotes this part of Isaiah and clearly shows that Jesus is the stone that is rejected. And if we reject him, we will be crushed by him. But if we fear him as the one who holds our eternal souls in his hands, if we repent and we trust in his atoning death, 
then he becomes a sanctuary for us. He becomes a place of salvation in the last days and in every day of our lives. So thinking about this first choice, I want to say, brothers and sisters, don't let lesser things fill your vision and fill you with fear. Look long on who God is. Study his word, study his character, and fear him. Revere him. Walk through life with a reverence for God alone. And when you do that, he will become a refuge and a sanctuary for your soul. So the first choice is to fear God or fear everything but God. The second choice, you can probably fill these blanks in on your own, I bet. Trust God's word or trust everything but God's word. Trust God's word or trust everything but God's word. Notice then two themes in these verses in particular, verses um, starting in verse 16 through the end of, of chapter 8. First, it's, it's here that we start to see this idea of a remnant really show up. This idea that there, is a, there are true people of God amidst a wider group of people who claim to be the people of God. There's an emphasis on my disciples in, in verse 16, and the instructions of these verses seem to be directed at these, these faithful followers in contrast to the, the faithless nation. We're reminded of Jesus' parables, and ones like the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, where God's people are in and among those who are not, but who look a lot like God's people and will only be revealed on the last day in the judgment that comes. And so we're reminded to be vigilant, to strive to find ourselves to be truly walking with the Lord, not pretending to. The other major theme here is that of the testimony and the teaching. You see that in verse 16, bind up the testimony. And then you see it in verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. The people of God are to trust God and they're supposed to trust God's word. They're to hear and believe what God says. In verse 17, we see that they trust God's word even when his face is hard to find. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. External circumstances did not cause this group of, people, this group of people's faith to, to wane. They were to wait in hope in the Lord even when darkness surrounded them. Because God's word and his promises are true and trustworthy, even when his face seems hidden. We're, we're reminded that the circumstances we find ourselves in don't negate God's truth. We can continue to trust him even when his, his face is hard to find because we know who he is. Verse 18 shows us that, that when, we would, when the people of God trust in him, especially in the midst of darkness, it serves as a sign and a message to others. Verse 18 talks about about Isaiah and his, his children. God used Isaiah and his children, you can look back in chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8, as a means of communicating to his people. Isaiah's children got some rough names. They weren't names that are making the top 10 list or top 100 list of most popular names. Um, you can see in chapter 8, verse 1, one of them is named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, but these names were meant to communicate to God's people. God was using Isaiah's faith and even his children, and God was using this remnant to speak to his people in the midst of darkness. God used Isaiah and his children to, to speak a message to the nation. 
And, and Isaiah faithfully trusted the Lord, and his trust in the midst of apostasy, in the midst of darkness, served as a sign and a warning to God's people. Let's be honest, trusting God in darkness is not easy. Remaining faithful in the midst of faithlessness is hard. You might be the only Christian in your family, the only Christian in your workplace. You feel alone. You're not sure how to live this life or if your, your light is having any effect on those around you. But brothers and sisters, your humble trust in the word of God in the midst of darkness, in the midst of faithlessness, speaks loud and clear to the world. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says that God through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Your faith, your trust speaks even in the midst of darkness. So don't let the darkness snuff out your faith. And don't let the gloom convince you that your trust is of no value. Sadly, we often trust in things other than the Lord. G.K. Chesterton is quoted as saying something to the effect of, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. He believes in anything. If we're not trusting the Lord, we'll trust anything. Anything but him. Anything here means mediums and necromancers. It means fortune tellers and tarot card readers and things like that. And the Lord points out the irony of asking the dead to speak to them about the living, as if the dead are going to know more about life. He says, all they do is chirp and mutter. And yet, how many people listen to their chirping and muttering? Horoscopes fill our newspapers In our magazines, even today, the occult tempts us to trust in ways of discerning knowledge. And maybe you don't look at that stuff, or maybe you don't take it seriously, even if you do look at it every day. No, I don't know. Maybe. But we trust superstition sometimes more than we trust the Lord, don't we? We're quicker to knock on wood than to kneel in prayer. How foolish we are. We trust these things. We believe in superstition rather than the Lord. How ridiculous for us as children of God to put our hope in someone who would inquire of the dead on our behalf when we have the living word of God to speak to us. How much more reliable and sure is God's word than tarot cards or horoscopes? It's true. It's pure. How foolish to trust anything other than the Lord. The Lord alone guards his children. And any good that comes to us is from his hand alone, no matter what people might chirp or mutter or tweet. So don't sell your soul. Don't sell your allegiance. Don't sell your worship. Don't sell your trust to false religion. Don't sell it to politicians. Don't sell it to governments. Don't sell it to anything other than God Almighty. Because if you do, what you're trusting in is going to devour you in the end. If you're trusting in anything other than the Lord, it will finally crush you and disappoint you. This is in, seen in verses 21 and 22. The result of trusting in everything but the Lord, which is what the nation of, of Judah was doing, is distress, it's hunger, it's frustration, and anger. I love this where it says in verse 21, And when they are hungry, 
they will be enraged. I love that because we have that word in our house called hangry. You guys know that? <laughs> That's what's happening here. They're hungry and they're angry. And, it, and they descend into darkness and distress and gloom. That's the option if you choose to trust in anything or I guess everything other than the Lord. It's darkness, distress, gloom, distress, hunger, frustration, anger. That's what you have to look forward to. But Proverbs 4, 18 and 19 lays out the choice and the consequences clearly for us. It says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Can you see that path? The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Light has come, and it is coming for those who trust in the Lord. So trust in the Lord, even in the midst of darkness. But we know that this, this darkness that, that we face is, is not easy. Sometimes God's face does seem hidden, even as we're trusting in him. But there's hope, isn't there? There's hope that the dawn will come. And that's what we find in, in, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Because this is the final choice we're given. Hope in God's light. Or hope that the darkness will hide you from God's light. Hope in God's light or hope that the darkness will hide you from God's light. December 24th, the sun is going to set. We're all going to crawl into our beds with high hopes for Christmas morning. And we're going to rise probably even before the sun rises uh, with hope. Hope that a new day is coming. Hope that with the rising of the sun, something amazing is going to happen. Verse 1 of chapter 9 is in contrast to that last verse of chapter 8. Just notice the contrast. They will look to the earth. Again, uh, thinking about that, their, their faces are turned upward at the end of 21. Their faces are turned downward in 22, and they find nothing. They look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In place of darkness, distress, anguish, and gloom, we're told that these things are going to be gone and they will re be replaced by light. In fact, this text, if you read through it, it alternates it's what, um, what tense it's in. It alternates between the, the future tense and the, the past tense. It's telling, uh, Isaiah is telling Judah that the things that, that, are, that he's speaking of are yet to be, but they're so sure that it's as if they've already happened. The hope that we have is that sure. It's as if it's already happened. It's as if it's past tense that God is bringing light into this world. And the light is said to shine in particular in Galilee. This area of Judah would have been the first place that felt uh, Assyria's invading power, but it was there that the, they would, the, would be the first place to see the hope of his coming. And that hope is, is, is at least partly and, and gloriously seen in the coming of Jesus. You know from the gospel writings that it was in Galilee that Jesus did many miracles. And if you read Matthew 4, 12 through 17, as Jesus begins his ministry, we're told that he was fulfilling these words, that he was the light that showed up in Galilee. He was shining in a land of darkness and gloom and despair. 
Galilee is also called Galilee of the nations. And Isaiah is hinting that the light that Jesus is bringing is not just for the nation of Judah. It's not just for the nation of Israel. It's for all people. It's a universal light. Here at Encounter, you guys have been studying John chapter 1, and I love that wonderful, mysterious phrase in John 1 where it says, the true light, which gives light to who? To everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is the light that gives light to everyone. Jesus comes at the light, a light that brings joy to the whole world. Verses 4 through 7 tell us why the people are going to rejoice. You can see there's three different for or because statements. Uh, Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden. Verse 5, for every boot. And then verse 6, for to us a child is born. Verse 4 speaks about freedom. That the coming light is going to break the chains of oppression and slavery and take away the burden of sin. So we sing, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Verse 5 speaks of the destruction of all enemies. The light that was coming would, would trample every foe who rose up against God's people. And then verse 6 tells us how he's going to do it. How is he going to bring freedom? How is he going to trample all of our enemies? How is he going to scatter the darkness and the gloom? For to us, a child is born and a son is given. It's shocking when you think about it, isn't it? How are we going to be rescued from the darkness and gloom that fills our hearts? A child? A little baby is going to come and rescue us? We're not surprised if we've been reading through Isaiah because Isaiah keeps talking about children who are bringing judgment and salvation. His own children do it. And then there's the promised child that's coming from chapter 7, verse 14, Emmanuel. And now this child comes and he's going to rescue God's people. This, this, this child is going to remove the burden from our shoulders. And he's going to bear the weight of a new government on his shoulders. A government of, of everlasting peace. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine a peace that never ends? A government that reigns over the whole world and there is no more war. A government that fulfills the word of the Lord that we are trusting in because it's a kingdom from the, the line of King David who God said in 2 Samuel 7 would have a son who would reign forever and his reign is going to be filled with righteousness and justice. A world that's filled with righteousness and justice. Don't you long for that? This king's going to be called Wonderful Counselor. He's going to rule with a wisdom even greater than Solomon's. He will be the mighty God. He's going to rule with power and might. He will be the everlasting father caring and nurturing his children. He will be the prince of Peace. Crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease and all be prayer and praise. That's the hope of the new kingdom. God brings light to our darkness. How? By sending a child. By sending his son. Jesus is the light of the world and through his life, death, and resurrection, he destroys our gloom. He brings light in place of all your despair. All your hopelessness. All your depression. 
He sets us free from the sin that enslaves us. He tramples down every enemy that you have. He speaks with wisdom to our hearts. He works with might in areas that we just feel like we have no victory. He loves us like a perfect father. He brings peace into all our turmoil. God is the one who does this. Notice how this passage ends. How is this going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. We are not trying to get back to God. He has come to us. He sent himself in his son. He has died to pay the penalty for our sins. He has risen so that we could have new life. He has come to give us hope. Hope like the rising sun after the darkest night. At Christmas, we celebrate that the light has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet we also know that there's still a lot of darkness in this world. There's still a lot of darkness in my heart. And so as we celebrate this first coming, we're longing for Christ to come again. We're longing for that second advent because it's, it's when he returns that we really see Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 fulfilled completely. We know in part now, but one day there will be no more night. There will be no more oppression. There will be no more wars. There will be no more death. We should note, though, that the coming of this light is not a blessing for everyone. The light at the end of the tunnel could be the light of salvation, or it could be the freight train of God's wrath coming against sin. And so some are going to hide from this light. They don't want their wickedness exposed. And so God's coming in Jesus does not spell salvation for everyone. It spells judgment for those who are not part of that faithful, believing remnant. And we will, they will seek to hide from his glorious light. If that's you, I want to invite you that, that Christ has come to shine light, to bring hope and forgiveness so that when he comes that we don't sit underneath his wrath, but we can bask in the beauty of his light. But we have to repent and trust in him. But if we're God's children through faith in Jesus, then we're children of the light. And Jesus comes to bring us hope. This is what we long for, not what we, we dread. And as we wait, we live as citizens of the kingdom of light. We live as children of light in the midst of a dark and crooked world. As God's faithful remnant, we choose what is right to fear, to trust in, and to hope in. We fear the Lord. We revere him only. We don't let these other fears cloud our vision. We walk through life with a fear and a reverence for God. And it's that that shapes how we live. We allow him and his glory to fill our vision. We trust him. We trust his word alone. We don't trust in, in other foolish things, that superstition or, or governments or our own intellect or whatever it might be. We trust in the Lord and we trust in his word because his word is sure and true. And we hope, we hope in his light, a light that has come in the person of Jesus and a light that will come again when he returns. Brothers and sisters, on Christmas Sunday, I invite you to walk as the true people of God, to walk as the faithful remnant in the midst of faithless, faithlessness and fear. Hear these words from 1 Peter chapter 2 as we close. 
1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, faithful remnant, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess that we have let the darkness rule over us. We've feared everything but you. We've trusted in things other than you. We've hoped that you wouldn't find out the darkness in our hearts. And so today we, we confess our failure to walk as your faithful remnant and we resolve, Lord, that on this Christmas Sunday we want to put our hope in you. We want our, our fear to be of you only, our honor and our reverence to be of God alone. We want to trust in you and your word, not in anything else. And Lord, we long and hope for the day when you come back and when light fills this world, when the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, help us to be faithful in the midst of darkness. Help us to live in light of that coming glorious day. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.